Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas. It's good to have you with us. It's good to have you here in our gymnasium. Or if you are joining us via radio, KFUO 850 AM in the St. Louis area, or worldwide, literally, on KFUO.org, we welcome you with us to our Sunday morning Bible study here. We are going to pick up where we left off last week in Luke chapter 3, and we are going to stop short of the genealogy of Christ. I don't want to... Go, have, go a third of the way into that and, and, uh, and have to stop. We'll probably do that next Sunday. But uh, we've got plenty to talk about left in Luke chapter 3 before we get to that. Let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the blessings you shower down upon us so richly, so abundantly, each and every day, both as individuals and as a congregation uh, together. We pray your blessing upon us as we gather here this day to study more about the life and ministry of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, culminating in the greatest act of love and compassion of all time, his going to the cross in our place and taking our sin upon himself. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning, that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of your word, and especially also of your will for us as your children living here in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, for those who are here, as usual, we do have Bibles over on the side, if you like. And uh, we're going, as I say, pick up in Luke chapter 3. Um, just a little bit of review to kind of get a running start here. Uh, we talked last week about the beginning of the public ministry of both John the Baptist and, as we'll see today, Jesus coming to be baptized by John, signaling the start of his three-year public ministry as well. Kind of interesting, you know, you get into Luke and you've got the Annunciation for both John the Baptist and for Jesus and the last we hear of Jesus is he's 12 years old and gets left behind at the temple. And then there's this 18-year, what we call silent period, where we wish we knew more, you know, about Jesus growing up and um, incidents and things like that. What was it like and so on. The, uh, again, the assumption is that he worked with his father Joseph um, in, as a carpenter. In fact, uh, two weeks ago in the gospel lesson, he was addressed as the carpenter. When they try to try to discredit him, remember, is not this the carpenter? <laughs> In other words, what's he talking about all this stuff for? He's just a carpenter. And so we'd like to know more about what happened. But then now we're at the point where everything is going to kick into gear. That uh, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He is calling people to repentance. He is preaching a baptism of repentance out there. And remember, we distinguished this baptism of repentance from both the Old Testament uh, washing ceremonies and the Jewish baptisms that they would do when someone became a Jew, uh, when a Gentile became a Jew. Uh, remember, the distinctions between those were uh, the other ones were self-administered, uh, and they were administered after you had been a Jew. Or the purification ceremonies were after, for example, you came into contact with something unclean. Uh, Pastor Smith in his sermon this morning referenced when a Jew would be in a marketplace and either be in contact with a Gentile, would have to go home and go through all kinds of washing ceremonies. Or if Jews bought something in a marketplace, 
they would bring it home and completely baptizo it. They would completely wash it because a Gentile might have touched it. That's how, that's how you know. So we, we're distinguishing the baptism. John's baptism is not any of those washing ceremonies from the Old Testament. And on the other hand, it is not the Trinitarian baptism that Jesus commands in Matthew chapter 28 when he gives the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. We get no indication with John's baptism that there is any pouring out uh, or, or even being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is often thought of as a baptism of preparation. That you re- It was a baptism of repentance, as it was called. That repentance meaning you turn away uh, from your old uh, way of life, your, own, your old thoughts, your old actions. In other words, for the Jews at that time, don't be relying on the fact that you've got Abraham as your father. Don't be relying on your own living a good life in order to try and impress God and, and make yourself right with God. Turn away from all that. One who is coming after me, said John, who is mightier than I am, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie, which would have been the most menial of, of jobs at that time. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. So John's message and his baptism are a message of preparation for the one who is coming. The one who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve, the one who was going to come and crush the head of Satan, is now on the scene. And he's coming right after me. You're going to see him. So John is the one that is sent out to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of a voice out in the wilderness, making you know, the high places low, the crooked way straight, and so on. That's John the Baptist, okay? So we looked at that last week. We looked at how repentance for us as Christians means not only, and this is a big, I think a big Lutheran um, contribution to theology in general, but baptism is more than just the sorrow and the contrition I feel in my heart uh, after I have sinned in thought, word, or deed. It also, very importantly, involves faith in the forgiveness that comes by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just feeling sorry for your sin, that's important, but it also involves faith in the trust and the promise that this sin for which I am contrite is forgiven and is completely wiped away, just as if it had never existed. And remember we also talked uh, later last week about the expectation that after we repent, after we receive God's forgiveness, that there be at least a desire to amend our sinful life. That whatever it is, especially if it's a, a sin that is repeated over and over again, that there be some desire there to change our sinful life, to turn away from that sin. And again, um, if you're going to be in the sanctuary service today, Look at the very last two lines in that, in that confession. That we confess our sins, we say we're sorry, and then uh, help us to delight in your will, you know, and walk in your ways. That's what we want to be doing. You know, not only, okay, I guess that's your will. No, we delight in that will. 
and we walk in his ways. So there is that connected with it as well. There is that, that desire to change our sinful ways, make them more in line, make them more uh, congruent with God's will for us uh, as his children living here. Okay? Um, okay, I think that brings us up pretty much to where we were last week. Let's, we'll start at verse 7, and we already covered some of this, but let's read this as a whole uh, through verse 9, and then we'll start picking up some of this. He said, this would be John the Baptist, Therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. <laughs> and remember we said that could very well be a reference to the original uh, serpent in the garden. So he's, in effect, perhaps here referring to them as the spawn of Satan himself. It literally means young snakes of a nest. Um, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And again, that changed life, the fruits of the repentant person. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So I think we'll, we pick up with, you know, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's where we kind of left off last week. So the Jews were trusting for their good standing with God in what? What was the thing they were trusting in? Good works? Yeah, we're we're descendants of Abraham. So we've got it right. We are the chosen people of God. God chose Abraham seemingly for no reason at all. Said, go off into a land I'm going to show you. And I'll bless you, and you will be uh, through you all. Uh, your your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And um, you, through your offspring, every nation of the earth will be blessed. Okay, we understand that, of course. The offspring that came from the line of Abraham is Jesus Christ, and through him, all nations of the earth have certainly, most certainly, been blessed. But they were trusting in the fact that they came down through the line of Abraham. God chose Abraham. He chose Abraham's descendants to be his people. We're descendants of Abraham. We're just fine. We don't need to repent. What are you talking about, John? We have no need of repentance whatsoever. Okay. Now, I think I've said in here before, I I sometimes lose track of what I say in which class or where, but I have definitely run, not, not very often, but I have run across people like this in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, in a congregation, and they're trusting not uh, in their current relationship with God or with Christ, but you talk to them and they'll say perhaps something like, well, my great-great-grandparents were charter members of this congregation, right? Some of you are nodding your heads. Uh, or, you know, my grandfather was an elder for 25 years in, that con- in this congregation. Or, you know, my mom taught Sunday school for 20 years here. Now, that's all great. I'm not saying that's bad. That we, we thank God for all of their service and, and all of what God did in and through them. But again, we are not saved. 
by the faith of our ancestors or those who came before us. It is a current relationship with God and with Christ that counts. And this is what they could not seem to get through their heads. And this is what Jesus and John kept trying to point them to. Do not say, we are the children of Abraham. Because God from these very stones can raise up children for Abraham. There's a couple meanings here behind this statement about stones. The first and most, I guess, most literal, most obvious one is that God could take an inanimate, non-living object like a rock and make a child from Abraham, make, make a Jew, so to speak, if he wanted to, right? Here's the other possible line on this. Guess what the uh, Jews, guess what term at, at times the Jews used to refer to Gentiles? Stones or rocks. Because they were, they, they felt they were so non-alive, I guess you would say. And so we don't know for sure. It's not, he doesn't say, you know, there's no parenthetical statement here. He said this because. But that, is he actually saying there to them that God from Gentiles could make up descendants of Abraham if he wanted to, right? And we're going to see later on where the Gentiles are the ones who are coming to faith, whereas the Jews, some of the Jews, are being completely reluctant and resistant to this whole notion uh, of, of repentance. So God is saying here that, uh, or I'm um, sorry, John is saying here that, you know, from these very stones, don't, don't, don't think that's such a big deal to be a descendant of Abraham. God from these very stones could raise up children for Abraham. Now let me ask you this, in the New Testament... Paul in Galatians, who are the true children of Abraham? Is it by bloodline or is it by faith? By faith. Take a look at Galatians. If you can keep your finger here, turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. So Galatians 3, and we're going to look at verse 7. Galatians 3, verse 7. So verse 7 Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul makes it very clear to those in Galatia who, again, same problem, were trusting in the fact that they were the true descendants of Abraham and needed no repentance whatsoever, that your bloodline, your lineage, means absolutely nothing. In fact, in a sense, you might be bloodline descendants of Abraham, but the true sons and daughters of Abraham are those who believe, those who have faith. Remember in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It is faith that justifies, not your relatives or where, you know, what line you came down through. And uh, so they needed to hear that. We need, I guess, to be reminded of that uh, today. Uh, going on here, even now... 
The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Just off the top, does this sound good, bad? (laughs) Is this a comforting message? The axe is laid to the tree. So you got a tree standing here, and there's an axe laying in its root. What what is the picture that we see? What's going to happen? What do you do with an axe in a tree? Cut down the tree, right? The axe is laid at the tree. This is an image for judgment. And in a sense, the judgment is already happening. That's what he's trying to get through to them. We always think, I, I, I guess we're prone to think, that you know, judgment is going to be that day in the future when Christ returns and you know, like Matthew 25 separates the sheep from the goats and, and so on. When is the last opportunity a person has before judgment to be saved? When is it? When they take their last breath, right? Here on this earth. And we thank and praise God for the times when even on their deathbed, uh, people finally are, are receiving Christ as their Savior. It's too bad it didn't happen 20 years earlier, but... You know, we, we rejoice and we thank God for those events. But there is a real sense, we'll see it in just a moment, that the judgment, in a sense, has already begun. Uh, have you rejected Christ? Have you rejected God's offer of forgiveness and grace, compassion, salvation? If so, you are already under judgment and you are already under the wrath of God. Contrary... If you have received Christ and are trusting in him for the forgiveness of your sin, you already have eternal life. Your eternal life has already begun. Right? So there is a sense in which I think a lot of people tend to think of this as something that's, that's not a present reality. I'll put it that way. Something that is way off in the future. And I think especially for young people, right, we're invincible. I'm not, I'm not speaking for myself anymore, but we, we feel like we're invincible and, you know, nothing's going, to, nothing's going to harm us. You know, I'll think about that someday down the road, you know, maybe when I'm really old, you know, in my 40s or 50s, I'll think about that. And I don't need to, I don't need to worry about that now. But, you know, the reality is that it's a present day situation that you're in either on one side or the other. And there's no having one foot in one camp and one in the other. It's, it's always presented, especially by Jesus, as an either-or. You're either here or not. And so, you know, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. Notice there, every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What would the fire there symbolize? The judgment or hell. Yeah, absolutely. And so bearing good fruit is producing another way of speaking about this, speaking about bearing fruit that is fitting with repentance or in line with repentance. Uh, The only fruit that is pleasing in the sight of God is that which comes in and through faith in Jesus Christ. That is pleasing before him. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, without faith... It is impossible to please God. Okay? So I could give a million dollars to a hospital here. I don't, I, I, if I would give a million dollars to a hospital here in St. Louis, 
uh, that would be a great thing. I mean, I'm not going to sit up here and say this, that would be a bad thing. That would be wonderful. But in terms of my standing with God, my salvation with God, not, if it doesn't come from faith, if it doesn't stem from faith in Jesus Christ, if it's done for other motives, other uh, reasons, it doesn't help my standing with God whatsoever. And frankly, I guess in a real sense, maybe it doesn't help at all because I'm already, right? I'm already got all, I, all I'm going to get. I'm, I'm forgiveness and eternal life and salvation. So, um, again, bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Maybe just one other point here. Notice we as Lutherans, I think, always tend to shy away from talking about good works because we want to be so careful that we don't venture over into works righteousness. But notice here, the fruit of repentance is, what are we talking about here? Good works after we have repented, after we have received Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our life should be full of that kind of fruit. And that is pleasing in the sight of God, not going to, you know, not going to, not done so that he would love us more or something like that. But that is pleasing in the sight of God. And so as a Christian congregation, we're, you know, wanting to be active and vibrant in the producing of this, of this fruit. And, you know, we don't have time, but we could, we could go around and talk about all kinds of examples of this that we see in our midst. Thankfully, God working through us. So, there's a sense in which the judgment has already begun. Let me show you a couple of verses. Um, if you would, t- uh, if you keep your finger where you're at, just turn over to John. Just turn uh, one more book to John 3. This is one of the best verses, I think, to point this out. John 3, verse 36. John 3, verse 36. John 3, 36. All right, so, whoever believes in the Son, notice the present tense, has eternal life. Present tense. It's ours right now. It's not something we wait till we die. In order to get, we have eternal life right now. But notice, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, for something to remain on me, what does that imply about what my current situation would be? It's on me, right? The wrath of God is on me because of my sin. And um, uh, another one, if we would turn to Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, And let's take a look at verses, just verse 3, I think, is probably all we need to look at. Ephesians 2. Sorry, we got a little jumping around today, but Ephesians 2, starting at verse 3. So, Paul, this is a long, long sentence. We won't read everything that comes before it. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So by nature, that means our natural state, before God has done anything in us or for us, with us, our natural state, by nature, we are described as what? Children of wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath, yeah. We are children of wrath, under the wrath of God. 
And it, rem- uh, it is, and notice there, nobody can say, oh, well, that's you. I don't, I don't, I'm not under that. No. Like, like the rest of mankind. Okay? Now, the reason we want to say this is because there are some, uh, churches today that will say that in terms of, you know, the confession of sin, for example, that we make on Sunday mornings, we'll say, oh, come on, that, that is such a downer. Uh, you know, that's so negative. That, you know, we're, we might be a little, you know, we might have a few flaws when we're, when we're conceived and born, but, you know, we're basically pretty good. And uh, while that sounds nice, and that's what we want to hear, I guess, the scriptures, uh, that's the problem, the scriptures don't bear that out. And this is, again, the message of repentance that John is bringing. This is all law. The axe is laid at the tree. Any tree not producing fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. I mean, it's kind of, you know, quick, clean, and here it is. I mean, he is, John does not mince words about anything. Okay? So back to chapter 3. So again, this, this again, flies in the face of this, uh, we used to call it uh, positive thinking, um, Dale Carnegie, uh, uh, Robert Schuller out in California, you know, they just think positive thoughts and uh, lift yourself up sort of a theology. It's just not, just not, unfortunately, not born out in Scripture. All right, let's go on then. Verse 10 of chapter 3, back in Luke chapter 3. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. This uh, verses 10 through 14 is actually unique to Luke. It's not in the other Gospels, so we're grateful to Luke uh, that we have this uh, little section, section here. Um, in, uh, in the Greek, the, the word for asking is an imperfect verb, which means they kept on asking. This was not just a kind of a once, you know, one, one question somebody asked. They kept on asking him. They really wanted to know, what should we do? And isn't it interesting that they're not talking about beliefs or doctrine here, are they? They're talking about their life. In other words, what should my actions be saying? What should I be doing as a, just a regular person, as a tax collector, or as a soldier? So what? tell me, John, what are the fruits of repentance that I should be demonstrating in my life? Remember last week... I told you that in the early church, when they were getting uh, catechumens ready for confirmation, that they would not only examine them as to their understanding of doctrine, but the bishops would ask them about their life. Are they praying for the widows? Are they helping with the distribution of food? In other words, does your life demonstrate repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? You know, we... We don't do that today. Uh, I've never asked it. You know, up, up in front when you're going to confirm, you know, well, tell us about your life. Are you doing this? Are you doing that? 
But in the early church, there was this understanding that this fruit of repentance, your life would demonstrate what's inside the heart and would naturally flow out from that. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting difference. Um, so verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So we see here, first of all, that you know the fruits in keeping with repentance included love and compassion and charity. The tunic was sort of a basic uh, garment that was worn on the outside, and, and uh, John says here, hey, if you've got two, share with somebody who has none. Or if you've got food, share with those who do not. So this is just, again, a part of the fabric and core of the Christian faith. And again, um, you know, we could list a number of things here at St. Paul's that we do that fall into that category. All the collections that we have, you know, we just got, June was diaper month, for example. Maybe that's not the best one, but we, we do food for, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, places. Um, it looks like on September 11, we're going to have, I have to recontact them, but it looks like we're going to have a semi out here on our parking lot and uh, be able to bring food for both the, na- the um, National Guard and the St. Louis um, food shelter, area food shelter. So there are all kinds of these things because, again, we understand this is just a part of who we are, that we do share with those who are in need. And in a, in a way, we are God's instruments of providing for his people, aren't we? He works through us to provide for those, as if he were doing it himself, and he really is, through us, providing for those who are poor, those who are needy, those who are in need of food, for example. So it was understood, at John the Baptist's time, it was understood that way as well. Um, Going on, now the tax collectors come in verses 12 and 13, Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Again, what shall we believe? What shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to correct. Um, In the Greek, it, it can either be translated, Tax collectors also came to him. There's a, that word also is a little Greek word, kai. It can also mean even tax collectors were coming to him. It, doesn't, it depends on how you want to translate it. But it can be tax collectors also, or even tax collectors were coming to him. You know, the surprise that they're coming to him out here in the wilderness. And in, in the, uh, just a little bit on this, in the promised land at this time, the tax collecting for the Romans, which was despised by God's people. But anyway, you would buy a franchise to be the tax collector for your area. I was trying to think of what to compare this to, and I'm not, I'm not making any direct comparisons here, but aren't the departments of, uh, is it Department of Revenue, where you go to get your license plates and your tags, re- I think those are individual franchises that people pay for, and then you operate that franchise. And so they would go to the highest bidder, and they would have these big financiers who would buy up at least one of these franchises. They were called the publicans. Publicans, not republicans, but publicans. 
And they were the high roller financial guys who bought up these franchises. Then they would employ the tax collectors. They were sort of the underlings to actually collect the taxes and so on. And it seems like the people just didn't have a clear understanding about how much tax they should actually be paying. And the tax collectors and the publicans got this reputation for swindling people, for overcharging on the taxes, which made, made God's people just detest them even more. Number one, they, they hated the idea of sending the money off to Rome. That was number one. But secondly, they always felt like they weren't getting a, a square deal. You ever have that feeling? You get something done, let's say in your house, and the bill comes and you look at it and you go, hmm, I, I wonder if that was a good price or not. You know, you, don't, you didn't get other bids before it happened. And the final bill comes and you say, well, okay, I, I kind of feel like I'm being taken here. I'm not sure. But you don't really have a choice at that point, right? The work's done. And so they always had this feeling that they were being swindled. Now, interesting here. Does John tell the tax collectors, leave your job. Don't do this anymore. He doesn't. He does not say to them, this is a dishonorable profession and you need to get out of it. He simply tells them, don't collect any more than you should be collecting. In other words, don't cheat the people and pocket it for yourself. And if we don't have the time, but we could look at Romans 13 again. Or, or remember this, remember they came to Jesus and they wanted to trick him and they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And if he said no, they'd get him on what? Treason, right? He's, he's insurrectionist and so on. They said, if he said yes, then the Jews are all upset because, again, they, they just couldn't stand this whole, this whole system anyway. What does Jesus do? Ah, show me a coin. Whose picture's on it? Caesar. Well, render unto Caesar what's his and unto God what's his, right? And the same thing. We are not, as a church, we are not anti-government. We are, in fact, in Romans 13, it talks about the government being God's avenger to punish evil. And we would say that as the government, we, you know, restrains evil in terms of crime in our midst. And even internationally, when we declare a war, hopefully it is to combat evil and not for any other uh, reason. And so we, uh, again, it's, it's interesting here. In fact, Luther, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to get to that in just a minute. When we get to the soldiers, I've got another point to make on that. But he does not, he does not ask him, them to quit being tax collectors. Go do something else. As if the profession itself were evil or taxes were evil or something along those lines. He says, just don't, just don't cheat people. Just don't swindle people. Okay? Um, this is kind of, it, it's... This tax collector is kind of interesting. Luke has more tax collectors and tax collector stories than any of the other Gospels. And, and we, we don't have time to look at these, but let me just tell you a couple. In Luke 5.27, uh, Luke emphasizes that Matthew was a tax collector. The disciple, Levi, what? Uh, I don't think he was a publican. I think he was just a tax collector, tax gatherer. In Luke 7, Luke emphasizes that tax collectors were included in the table fellowship 
of those who accepted Jesus as Messiah. And boy, to eat with somebody in Bible times was a very significant thing. And so Luke mentions that tax collectors were even there. In Luke 15, Luke reports that the Jews grumbled because Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. That's 15 verse 2. And then Jesus goes on to tell the story of the lost and found coin, the lost and found sheep, and the prodigal son. And every time something is found, there's rejoicing. Trying to tell them, instead of you guys complaining, you ought to be rejoicing that sinners are repenting and coming to faith. And then the big one in Luke 19, verse 2, who's the wee little tax collector? Zacchaeus, right? I won't sing the song. I'll spare you that. Uh, But Zacchaeus, and he is called a chief tax collector, which puts him way up, okay? Now listen listen to what Zacchaeus says in Luke 19, he is there. He obviously has repented, has, has, is there with Jesus. Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today, right? And uh, in 19, starting at verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. So what's he demonstrating there? What we talked about just a minute ago, right? Half of my goods I give to the poor. Charity, right? And then he says, If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Fourfold. So, and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. So Zacchaeus got it. He again is is clearly here bearing the fruits of repentance in his life, even as a tax collector who is looked down upon uh, by the Jews. All right, then verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now, again, does Jesus say to the soldiers, don't be a soldier anymore. Leave that profession behind. He does not, does he? And this was a big issue in the church all the way up to Luther's time. Luther wrote a small tract. It's it's titled, Can Soldiers Also Be Saved? Now, why would there be a controversy or even a question about a Christian serving as a soldier? Why? What question might there be in people's minds that might make them think it's improper for a Christian to be a soldier. You, yeah, you may well be in a situation where you are going to use lethal force against someone else and kill them, thus violating the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, right? And Luther comes, actually uses this verse that we're looking at right now as a part, not the whole, but a part of his response. That John the Baptist did not say, don't be a soldier anymore, you can't do this any longer. And again, it goes back to the very same principle we were talking about earlier, that the government, the soldier is not acting on his own, is he? He is acting on behalf of the government. And so the government, again, is God's avenger, to exact uh, uh, vengeance on, or to, to restrict or act vengeance on evil. Okay? And it's the same with a police officer, isn't it? 
I mean, if someone, if someone, um, if someone robs me, do I have the right to go out and shoot them? No. But a law officer, if confronted and put in a life-threatening situation, does have the authority to do that, right? I can't go out and just start exacting my own uh, justice on everybody that wrongs me in life. That's why we have law enforcement, right? And so it's the same principle here, that uh, a soldier is acting on behalf of the government. Again, Romans 13. And uh, here, he's, he doesn't say, quit being a soldier. Uh, now, notice the response. What, what does it look like, because of the response, what does it look like that soldiers were kind of known to be doing at that time? Some of them, not probably, I'm sure not all of them, but some of them. What were they, what were they probably doing? Okay, falsely arresting people, ex extortion, right? Trumping up charges against someone and bringing them into court, blackmailing them perhaps, you know, if you don't do this, I'm going to arrest you on this charge and who's going to know any different? You know, you're, you're going to just be in all kinds of trouble. That, um, that word for extortion literally means to shake something thoroughly up and down. I think this is where we get the term shakedown, right? The shakedown. And it's literally what it means, is to shake somebody down. Uh, and so, again, we only know this because of what John says here, but apparently the soldiers were known to be doing that at that time, or at least some of them were, enough that he would say it. You know, what should we do? Don't do this. And so, again, uh, unrepentant soldiers, here's how you bear the fruits of repentance, or produce the fruits of repentance. Okay? All right, we're going here. Uh, verse 15. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You know, Luke starts out here kind of just setting the tone, doesn't he? There was great expectation. In other words, the people were in expectation that now something big was going to happen. John's out there in the wilderness. He is preaching and teaching. Crowds of people are rushing out to him and being baptized by him in the Jordan. And there is this sort of, you know, the, you can just see the, the tension is starting to build and the excitement is starting to build. And who did they think might be the Christ? John. Uh, isn't there a temptation there, maybe, for John? Right? Hey. Maybe so. How did John know that he was not the Christ? Who would have instructed John that he was not the Christ? Zechariah. Remember his song? That you, my child, shall be you know, in, in preparing the way, not the one who is the way. And it's clear that John had a very clear and accurate understanding of his role. That he was not to be pointing to himself as anything, 
but pointing to the Christ. And this is exactly what he does in this section. Now, you know, John is kind of an interesting guy because, remember, he has his own disciples as well. Remember that he sends his disciples to Jesus one time, and this is kind of, I preached on this last year, kind of a shocking question. He's in prison, and he sends his disciples to Jesus, several of his disciples. Remember the question he has them ask? Are you the Christ, or shall we expect another? Now, there's two theories on that question. The one theory is, he was, John was absolutely sure that Christ was the Christ, and he wanted his disciples to hear Jesus' answer to that question. The other side is that sitting there in prison, and he's, he's going to be beheaded eventually, you know, that he's starting to have doubts himself. He's wondering himself. We don't know for sure. You know, we're not told why he sent them. And in fact, on face value, it seems like it's the second one, that he's just, he's just having uh, some uncertainty. But anyway, he had his own disciples. Um, and, and again, this, this kind of, of attitude or this kind of perspective on life, that you're not there to point to yourself, but to point to Christ, is one that, of course, all pastors, uh, we hope, can keep in mind. That, that we're not here for ourselves, we're not here for our own glory and grandeur, but are here to point to Jesus. That's the only reason we're here. Only reason John was sent ahead of time. Point to Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes, doesn't proclaim himself, points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And everybody who's involved in that entire mission is doing the same thing. Pointing to Jesus. Okay? So... Uh, he's attracting large crowds. Um, the expectation is there. Now, he will baptize, the one who's coming after, Jesus in this case, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Uh, when, obviously, was there a baptism that the Holy Spirit was very, very uh, noticeable at? Pentecost, yeah, coming up. Uh, and 3,000 souls were added that day to the number being saved. Uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, tons, of, tons as a fire came and rested on the disciples. They began speaking in many other known languages of that day at the festival of Pentecost in Jerusalem. The fire, we think, is not a reference to Pentecost, but a reference to judgment again. Judgment to come, especially the way it's used in, in other verses right around it here. It seems like again, so again, it's the same sort of thing. Jesus comes with the Holy Spirit, and it either leads to faith or it leads to judgment, one of the two. There's, there's no in-between here. Uh, you can't, can't be sort of in a gray area here, okay? Um, let's go on fire again, a reference to Pentecost. Um, yeah, we don't have the time right now. Let me just read for you. I was going to have you turn to Matthew 18, verse 8. And this is that uh, really radical uh, statement that Jesus makes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. So again, it seems a clear reference to hell and condemnation. Or Matthew 25, which is the great chapter about the second coming of Christ. That's the entire chapter. Uh, verse 41, Matthew 25, 41. Then he, the Jesus will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, 
prepared for the devil and his angels. Again, a reference we would say to hell. Uh, this obviously flies in the face of, um, you know, we still have people today, you can find them, that um, they'll say, you know, we're all heading in the same direction. We all want to get to the top of the mountain. And there are many different roads, different paths that lead up to the top of that mountain. You know, Christianity is one of those paths. And you've got all these other paths. And as long as you're sincere and do your best, no matter what path you're on, we're all going to be saved someday. That's called universalism, that, that all people eventually are going to be saved. And again, doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't that just sound great? But unfortunately, again, the scriptures do not support that whatsoever. I mean, not even close to that. So, um, again, universalism, if you read this, I, I'm not sure how. The winnowing fork and the threshing floor, when they would bring in the harvest, some of you maybe grew up in an agricultural area, I don't know, but there's the threshing floor where you put all of the crop down there, right? And the winnowing fork and so on. In fact, in Israel at that time, they would even use the wind for some of this. They would throw it up in the air, and the chaff would be blown away, and all you got left is the, is the uh, crop that you wanted here. And the crop, after this winnowing process is done on the threshing floor, would not be left to sit out there on the threshing floor, especially if the rainy season were coming, it would all rot. So it would be stored in a barn. And what would they do with the chaff and the straw? Burn it. Yeah. So again, this is a reference to judgment. The good crop, again, would be those who are bearing uh, fruits of repentance, or in other words, believers, versus the chaff and the straw, the unbelievers, who, again, would be, would be the, uh, the unbelievers who are thrown into the fire. Uh, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. So, you know, this also, uh, we don't have a lot of detail here, but John the Baptist, it looks like, is not just calling for repentance, but he preached the good news, the gospel to people as well. We wish we had more details as to exactly what he um, did, and especially what he said, I should say, what he taught in particular, but he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And I, we rehearsed last week, in fact it was last week's gospel lesson. I'll just briefly recap this for those of you who may not have been here last week. But remember, this, is not, this Herod is not Herod the Great here. This is not the Herod that when Jesus was born. It's a, a son of him. And Herod, this Herod, Antipas, and his brother Philip were brothers. And Herodias, who was married to Philip first, and then to Herod, was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. So first, she was married to her uncle Philip, and then after that, seemingly without even a divorce, she was married to Herod Antipas, her uncle as well. Okay? Kind of got the picture there? And uh, John had the audacity to speak against that marriage. And Herodias held a grudge against him, uh, worked uh, through uh, Herod uh, Antipas here to get him, uh, John, uh, arrested. 
Uh, he sat in prison. We think that's the time he sent the, his disciples to Jesus. And then, remember, last week's gospel lesson was the birthday party that Herod Antipas threw for himself. Uh, Herodias' daughter comes out and dances for the entire group there, you know, military leaders and big wigs at that time. Uh, they are all quite impressed with her, including Herod Antipas. And remember, he promises her anything, even up to half of his kingdom. And just, what do you want? Well, she doesn't know what to ask for and goes and asks mom. And Herodias says, get John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod Antipas is reluctant, but on the other hand, he has vowed this before all of his guests and has really painted himself into a corner. Sends the executioner, they chop off John's head and bring it in on a platter. And so this is now, we're going to see the last, in, in Luke's gospel, we're going to see the last sort of, uh, John the Baptist is going to be fading out now. We're going to see Jesus come and get baptized by him, and then that's pretty much it for John the Baptist in Luke's gospel. Okay, um, I'll just say this, that, you know, um, the more, I don't know about you, but the more I read and think about John the Baptist, I get a more and more of an appreciation for him uh, as a person, as a proclaimer, as... He, he simply told the bold truth. He didn't couch it in any terms, even, I'm sure, knowing that there was great opposition to him out there. He did not shrink back uh, from proclaiming the truth of God's word and was faithful until the very end. So I'm not sure he gets quite, you know, we always look to Jesus, and appropriately so, but I'm not sure that John gets quite the... Uh, admiration, I guess you'd say, that we should give to him as the forerunner of Christ and all that that meant for him um, in his life and sh cut short, unfortunately. Uh, it would have been great to see what he would have done if he would have gotten out of prison and would be able to go, you know, along with Jesus the rest of the way. Uh, but unfortunately, that was not, not to be. Um, let's see. I'm going to probably stop there because we're going to get to the baptism of Jesus and then we're going to get into that genealogy of Jesus. I'm still trying to decide what I'm going to do with that genealogy of Jesus. I know I don't want to go person by person through the genealogy. Uh, that will be as exciting as watching paint dry, I think. So we're, we'll figure out something there. I think there are some, there's some notable ones, though, I think that we can pick out and, and say a little bit about. But I don't anticipate we're going to be going person by person uh, through the genealogy. I'm not saying that's not a great study, but um, that might get a little tedious here for us. Okay, So we'll pick up there next week uh, with the baptism of Jesus. And now everything is about to happen. You know, it, it's going forward. The time has come, and he will be going out into the wilderness again. Remember the, the, the importance the wilderness plays throughout the Scriptures. He's going to go out in the wilderness after he's baptized to be tempted by Satan. And where Old Testament Israel and we were unfaithful in the temptations by Satan, he is successful for us in our place. And we'll talk about the baptism and why in the world is Jesus getting baptized? Why does he need to get baptized? We'll talk about that next week as well. Okay? So let's end right there. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.